Hear the word of the living God, taken from Exodus chapter 20, reading from verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Amen. Turn with me now to 1 John and chapter 1, which we will read together. The first epistle called an epistle general or Catholic epistle, epistle sent to many believers, not just to one particular church, and written by the apostle John, the first of his three letters uh, that we have in the New Testament. Chapter 1, and we read the whole of this chapter together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Amen. And may the Lord bless the public reading of his word to us this evening. And with the Lord's gracious help, we hope to examine verses 5 to 10, uh, revolving around, and therefore most especially examining verse 7. Verse 7, which we'll read again. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. Amen and hallelujah. Let us pray briefly together, please. Our merciful God, we give thee thanks that we've had thy word before us. We've heard it, we've read it. Lord, the precious and true word of God. We do thank thee, Lord, for the scriptures of truth given to us, yet we live in a world of lies a world of darkness, and yet we have the light of the Word of God. And in that light, O Lord, Thou revealest Thyself. Lord, Thou revealest Thy Son. Thou revealest also our wickedness and our great need of forgiveness, our great need to know the Son as our own Savior, the great need of salvation, the great need to have peace with God and to have every sin forgiven us. And so, Lord, we, we humbly Give thee thanks for this great privilege graciously granted to us this evening, the voice of God in our own ears. And we pray that we may receive from thee help to understand it. And Lord, that we may hear, that we may look unto Jesus, that he would be even tonight, maybe for the first time, therefore, the author and the finisher of our faith, that tonight, O oh God, that there may be new births, that there may be the cries of the born again, in the souls, yes, Lord, and thou alone may be the only one that would hear those cries. The new birth, as the Spirit works, faith in the hearts of sinners and brings them into the family of God and the kingdom of Christ. May it please thee to do this and to bring glory to thy name and to help thy people, Lord, who have by thy grace and not by works uh, been saved from sin. Lord, to prepare ourselves for thy table, that we would come and eat and drink, that there would be no sin 
that there would be no disunity between us and thee and each other, that, Lord, uh, we would have fellowship with thee. O oh God, help us this night and give unto me all that I need, which is much uh, to preach uh, boldly and clearly, even this night. The Lord, that I would grant me a tongue that would speak the truths of God and to glorify Christ. And Lord, that I would grant unto us all teachable spirits, that the word would not be cast from us, that the hearts would not be cold and tight, but would be soft and warm and open to receive the word of the living God. Please grant this, we pray, for we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Indeed, amen. When it comes to the Lord's table and the reading uh, which we take from 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, he comes to correct a number of matters that take place in public worship. Here we have the Apostle uh, to the Gentiles, therefore writing to the Gentile churches and correcting them that they were not to just make up their own worship and their own traditions, but they were to be correct. And so there's a number of points that he brings in. We could begin at chapter 10 as he applies uh, doctrines or brings in practical applications of general theology. And he continues to the end of the book, really, the end of the epistle. Uh, but in verse 11 or chapter 11, he, he speaks on a number of matters. He speaks on headship and brings that into head covering. There is headship that the Christ submitted himself to the Lord, to, to his Father, and that is to be an example to every woman and every girl in the congregation, that they are to submit themselves in the way that Christ did. There's a Christ-likeness of the female believer. And he says there's a sign to show this, for men to be uh, humbled uh, under, under Christ as the head of the church. They are no longer to cover their heads as the Jews did because Christ has been revealed. The head has been revealed. Therefore, the head, the head of the household, the head of the church uh, in human matters is to be without any head covering. But the woman to show that she is submissive to the authority that God has ordained is to have a head covering. And then he goes on and spends another, uh, well, 16 verses in total explaining this doctrine of headship and head covering. And immediately after he's corrected that part of public worship, he moves on to the Lord's table. Uh, there are aspects, and we're not going to go into those aspects uh, tonight because we're not looking at 1 Corinthians 11 as such. But he goes in and, and corrects a number of matters, and then he begins to describe that this is revealed from Jesus Christ. And then we, he goes back and, 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 well, first of all, he says that he has received this. He has received this direct from the, from the Lord. And then we read in, 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 in those gospel accounts that have the Lord's Supper, he's, he, he starts saying the same things that, that, that is also revealed and witnessed there, that in the same night in which he was betrayed, that the Lord, well, he took those elements of bread and wine and explained that these were the elements of a new covenant, the elements of a new covenant, and that they were symbols of his body and his blood. And in, in showing that and, and declaring that, that they are to do this as often as they do it, they're not to do it often, but as often as they do it, they're to do it in remembrance of him. It is a memorial 
feast is a memorial supper, just like the Passover from where it came was a memorial feast of the redemption of God's people from Egypt. So here, continuing that in the New Covenant, in the blood of the New Testament, uh, we see again a memorial feast to remind us of the work of redemption. But then he carries on and gives words of warning. He fences the table, as it were. He gives clear warning and he divides the congregation. He divides, as it were, the people he's writing to in the, in, in the congregation at Corinth or the churches at Corinth and to all Christian churches. He divides them into two groups. How big is one group? How small another group is is not, what he's, is not the point. He's not dividing them into halves, but he's dividing them into two groups. And to use the naming that the apostle uses, he calls them worthy or not worthy or unworthy. And who are the worthy then? Who are those who are worthy to come and eat and drink at the Lord's table? Well, he says it's those that are saved and therefore have a right to partake of the elements. They are in the body of Christ. They have a, they have a right to feast on the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says there's another one, another group then, the unworthy, and those are those who are unsaved and not part of the body of Christ and have no right to eat and drink of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But he also includes this, those who are not walking rightly with the Lord. So he would include some saved who have become backslidden, who have become rebellious, who have therefore temporarily forfeited their right to the table until they repent. The table stands there every time uh, and, and beckons those who belong to Christ to come and feast. But there should be a discerning. There should be a repenting. There should be a preparation. And that's why we're exhorted to self-examination, to examine ourselves, something many of us don't do. We examine others, but we are commanded to examine ourselves. And in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle says this, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. You're to examine yourself. And likewise, in a more general sense, uh, Paul, again, when he writes to the Corinthian church, but in his second epistle, he says something very similar. Chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians and verse 5, he says this. He says this to a church. He says this to a group of believers. He says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove, that is, test your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. Speaking to a church of believers gathered in, the boldness of the apostle to say to them, examine yourself. Know you're not your own selves, how that Christ is in you, except, because if that's not the case, you'd be reprobates. You'd be unbelievers. You'd be displeasing to God. Now, those are the very two very clear verses that we have in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 11:28 in the context of the Lord's Supper, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 as a as a as a stern uh, challenge to self-examination of all Christians that we all should take 
uh, that seriously. Not to be constantly reading it every day, but to take cognizance of it, to understand what it says and do it. And they are two of the clearest verses that we have as regarding self-examination. But then we come to the epistle of John, the first epistle of John. And the whole of the epistle is devoted to self-examination. And it reveals, therefore, marks and tendencies that are to be seen uh, uh, on the, uh, to be seen on the outside and, and to be experienced on the inside of those that truly believe. He talks about the outer life and he talks about the inner life throughout these, these five uh, chapters. And for example, he says, he asks this question in chapter 3. Essentially, he says, what is our heart toward our fellow believer? Do we despise them? Do we ignore them? Do we deride them? Do we consider ourselves better than they are? Do we love them unconditionally? He says, if we don't love them unconditionally, he says this essentially, the Scriptures call that hate. Scriptures can be terribly black and white in these things. If you do not love your brother, then the Scripture says, well, you hate him. There's no sort of gradations. 1 John 3 and verse 14 is that example I want to give. It says, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death, still spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, if there is no love towards your brother in Christ. Hear what he says? We know, this is what we can then say as a mark of our faith, that we know that we have passed from death unto life. We know that we're truly born again because we love the brethren. Unconditional love. Agape love. We love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. And what's your reaction to that? How dare you say I'm reprobate? Or, oh, I must repent and believe. The reprobate will answer the first one. The second one is being drawn to Christ through the Word of God. But John says, therefore, if you hate another person in the church, be it a fellow congregant, be it your minister, be it an elder, be it a visitor, be it a deacon, John the Apostle, whom Jesus loved, writes under the influence of the Holy Ghost, saying, you are still dead in your sins. Now, you might think that you have a good reason to despise that person or not like them. But God says, he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Well, the question is, whom are you to believe? Whom are you to believe when you hear this word? Are you to believe yourself and your own ideas or God who can never lie? If you believe yourself, it means that you disbelieve God and it means that you're an idolater. You cannot love God and hate his children. And that's the undeniable logic of God's Word. We see how sharp John is when it comes to showing us the marks of a true believer. There are things that you cannot get around. You cannot excuse. You cannot give your thousands excuses, oh, for this reason and that reason. He's very clear. This shows that you are born again of the Spirit of God or you are self-deluded and in your sins. And therefore, we must examine ourselves. We must examine ourselves, especially when we come to the table, where there is a curse of God upon those who would eat and drink unworthily. And so this is a discerning word, it's a separating word, and it is a word 
with the Lord's help, will prepare us for the table of the Lord this evening. And so with the Lord's gracious help, uh, let us examine these verses that we have. And the title of the message is this, Walking in the Light and Sitting at Christ's Table. Walking in the Light and Sitting at Christ's Table. And we have the first of uh, three points. And the first point is the declaration of God's being. The declaration of God's being. The, the apostle declares something about who God is. And this is something that we should all uh, perk our ears up and, and listen to. Here, here is something more revealed to us, to us about who our Creator is. Who the author of salvation is. Who it is that we are to come together this evening and to worship. Whom we are to devote our life to. As the Lord says, we are to love Him. Him with all our heart, soul, strength and mind. Now, if your understanding of God is very vague, you cannot love something vague. You cannot love a cloud, as it were. But God sharpens the focus upon who He is. He says who He is. And therefore, if we understand Him, we know the God whom we worship. That we might worship Him in spirit and in truth, meaning true knowledge, true worship. And so firstly then, as I said, the declaration of God's being we see in verse 5. Having spoken, and we looked at that last time, about uh, the, the, the witness of the apostles uh, regarding uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 5, this then is the message which we heard of him. This is the message that the incarnate Son of God gave to us as apostles to teach and preach to you that you would hear, that you would listen and understand and repent and believe and live. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You might have been expecting some sort of gospel uh, command and call there. Repent of your sin and believe and but the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the express image of the Father, the incarnate Son of God and his holy and pure and impeccable life is the express image of the, God, of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We look upon Christ and he says, we look upon Christ, the incarnate Son of God, and, and that message is this, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And when, when John, therefore, he says these things to us, he's revealing God to us. This was the point of Christ, to reveal God to us, that we would understand the true God. Or as the Apostle Paul mentioned in Athens, the unknown God, the God that the Athenians and their paganism knew not. They knew nothing of Jehovah God, the Creator and the Saviour. But he points to two aspects of the Godhead when he says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He talks firstly then about the simplicity of God. As light is a, is a beautiful and a pure and a, and a simple thing. And the simplicity of God really just means this, that there's no division in God. 
There's no, there's no, the Godhead is not divided. It does talk, of course, of the unity, but it's talking about the simplicity of God. You could say the singleness of God. The absolute unity of the Godhead in his entirety. Yes, there are three persons in the Godhead. But there is no division. When we, with our human maths, we would take, we would take an orange, say, and we would, we would cut it into three, three pieces. We would have three-thirds, but we would have no unity anymore. We would have no complete orange. And, and the glorious truth of the Trinity is that the Father has 100% of the Godhead, as does the Son have 100% of the Godhead. And the Spirit has 100% of the Godhead. So we can speak of three persons, and but one God. One, the God is not split up into thirds. Because that trinity also points to the simplicity of God. Because there is, Ed, there is no division. The three are one. The three are one. There is a, a unity. There's no division there's no animosity, there is no argument, there is no, nothing, anything like that. Hence, the Lord's uh, uh, repeated petition in John chapter 17, that they would be one as we are one. It is the will of the Lord Jesus Christ that all of his people, all of his church, would not be divided but would be one. Be one under him. One through the word. One through the church. A human, on the other hand, is divided. We have, we have different parts. We have parts. We have members of the body. We have bodily organs. We are, we are body, mind, and spirit. We are all sorts of things. Man is what we call complex. There is so much to man, and the more you would understand about how, how we're put together, you can see it's very complicated. And then you would go into the cells and see how each cell is incredibly complicated, more so than you would think. And then how those processes work, uh, those, meta, those, those biochemical pathways, how they all work and all these things fit in, is, is very, very complicated. But on a moral level, because of sin, man is complex. And that's not complex in a good way. Man is divided. A single person is divided. Thoughts and words and desires contradict each other. You know, what you said two years ago, you now say the complete opposite, for example. I mean, it might be an improvement, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. It might be, it might use the fact that you were a hypocrite two years ago, and now you're just being honest today, or vice versa, whatever it might be. But we all know that we have desires and wishes and dreams and we, we cannot or we will not fulfill them. But just those contradictions. You know, one thing we'll say with our lips, but the heart is burning in another direction. Complex. Sinfully complex. But God is not complex. God is infinite. God is eternal. God is wonderful and unchangeable. God is simple. He's simple. Even those attributes that we might think, when we think of God's character, that he is righteous, that he is compassionate, that he is merciful, they are all simple. They don't fight against each other. God's righteousness does not fight against his mercy at all. They're both done in holiness and love. 
We in our own minds, I mean, our sinful minds might, might think to ourselves, well, God, and, and as, as does go forth in, in so-called evangelical churches, that, you know, that, that God is not righteous and holy when it comes to the gospel. He's been merciful to you. Well, no, you don't understand that God's righteous demands have been laid upon Jesus Christ. And all of his wrath has been poured out upon him so that you would receive the undeserved favor of God through Christ. There's no contradiction. There is no change. As James teaches us in chapter 1 and verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There's no change in God. There's no division in God. There's no split in God. There's no yes and then no in God. God is simple, uh, is, has that simplicity of who he is, and we can thank God for it. That where he makes a promise and he reveals it to us through the prophets uh, and King David 3,000 years ago, that we today can, put, can, get, can gain much comfort out of the truth that that promise can be for me also. That God hasn't changed. He hasn't t changed his mind. There is no shadow of turning. He does not turn, and there's not even the shadow that there could be a turn, is what that means. Not a glimpse, not a whiff of change. Because that simplicity points to his perfection. But we're not going to go into that now because that's not what's taught here, although it's related, of course. So the simplicity of God, the, the, the singleness of God, the, 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 the union of God, that he is united and single, although three persons, brings us on to the core of what this expression here means, that God is light, the purity of God. The purity of God. Now, God is not merely compared to the purity and the brightness of light. It doesn't say that here. It does not say that God is like light or like unto a light. It's very clear. It says that God is light. And just the, the simple reading of the Greek will not allow you to say anything other than the authorized translators have made it. God is light. And of course, he's not created light. He's not a collection of photons. He's not the light that we see that's you know, emitted and reflected. But he is actual light. God is light. He is a bright, pure, spiritual light. And as we understand something of God from the Scriptures, God has a great glory that goes forth from him. That is an emanating of who he is, of his light, of his pureness. And that light is so pure that we understand from the Scriptures that when it comes into contact with that which is evil and wicked, it will burn it away. Hence why Moses had to be kept safe by the hand of Christ so that he would not see the full glory. Uh, but as he went back, bent past Moses hidden in the cliff of the rock, uh, that he would see just the back parts, just as it were the, uh, the real part of the glory and not the full intense consuming glory of God. And when Hebrews 12 and verse 29 tells us this, for our God is a consuming fire, merely quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, I believe from Deuteronomy. 
our God is a consuming fire. And therefore, in him is no darkness. He is all of this spiritual and holy light, this fire, this glory. There's no darkness in him. There's no moral darkness. There's not even a shadow, to take the language of James, there's not even a shadow of darkness there. Nothing. He's pure. He's morally pure. He's morally perfect which means that you can trust him. You might have an idea that God is in some way not to be trusted. The way you've been told, or the way you've, you've had it in your mind that, that God is in some way some out, to, out to get you, out to manipulate you, but he's not. He's not like your father was. He's not like how your uncle was. He's not like how that school teacher was. He's not like that. His motives are like himself. They are pure. Pure motives. His actions are pure. His words are pure. And therefore, his promises are pure. There's no booby trap under the promises of God. If you approach them in the way that he commands you to, humbly, in repentance and faith, and therefore, when you hear the gospel call, it is not for you to be cynical towards that call. Because there is no cynicism in God. There is no corruptedness of thoughts in God. We are not to be cynical towards Him because He would not have us be cynical to Him or to each other. Which is why Paul, in chapter 4 of Philippians, knowing the, the brain and the mind of man, he having one himself... And of course, the Holy Ghost speaking through him says this, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. In other words... We are to be as pure and holy and single as God is. Not to fill our minds with cynical and bitter thoughts. Let's praise God that the Lord does not have that towards us. Although we have all the evidence in the world. But when it comes to the gospel call, do not yourself be cynical towards God. Do not have these negative thoughts. Do not have these ideas. Yet God says this. God promises this. God offers this. But, but, but you're not to have those bad thoughts about God. In fact, in the context of what, uh, what was being uh, written there to the Philippians, uh, those about uh, fellow believers as well. So you're not to think to yourself, although God's word is open, although God's word is very inviting to me as a sinner, and although God does not want anything from me except my sin, or even think that these promises are too good to be true, or you would think to yourself, I cannot repent enough, or I don't feel guilty enough. None of that is mentioned in the Bible that you just may have thought. None of that's in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, there's no minimum degree of repentance demanded before Christ will let you into his kingdom. You're commanded to repent. There's no percentage mark given to it. 
And there's no minimum degree of, of guilt given in the Scripture. It's that we are guilty whether we feel it or not. We are guilty. And we are commanded to repent and to keep on repenting. If there's one thing that you might remember, and I speak to the young ones this evening, especially if there's one thing they remember from the preaching this evening, is that God is too pure to make a gospel promise and not keep it. God is too pure to make a gospel promise and not keep it. So that's the declaration of God's being. We see there a a glorious truth uh, that, that John gives us. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Secondly, the testimony of our salvation Because here is a great contrast that's made between God's simplicity and purity and man and mankind. And we see this in verses 6, the following verse, and in verse 8. And what we have here is not merely a general corruption of sinners. What he's dealing with in these two verses is actually the, in the chapter in itself, is the corruption that you see in gospel hypocrites. Gospel hypocrites. What's a gospel hypocrite? It's a great old Puritan expression. It's those that claim to be saved by the gospel but are in fact to be found hypocrites because they do not have the marks of salvation. They do not bear the fruit of the Spirit. There is truly no work of grace to be found in them. You could call them false converts as well, pseudo-Christians, false believers, dead legalists, all sorts of ways to express them. And John is very sharp when he's opening up this, uh, this truth here. And he says there in verse uh, 6, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So two aspects then he's opening up of how people are to discern their own spiritual state, state how they are to examine themselves, whether they are in the faith. And especially when it comes to the context of the Lord's table, because some of these that John is speaking of would shamelessly sit at the Lord's table. So we firstly then, if we can just split this up, we have the deception of others and then the deception of themselves. The deception of others we see in chapter 6, in verse 6, sorry. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So they are fake children of light then. If we say that we have fellowship with him, if they say that they walk with God, if they say that they are saved by him, if they say that they love him, if they attend church, if they read the Bible, and they try to convince everybody of how spiritual they are, but in reality, what does it say? It says that they are children of darkness, not really children of light. Fake children of light, but true children of darkness. This in the church of the first century? Yes. This in the church to which John the Apostle this great apostle, the apostle whom Jesus loved, the apostle who was, who, who was given that great revelation, he says this about believers that he knows? Yes. From the very beginning of the church, 
the New Testament church at least. You go back to the Old Testament church, it's the same thing. There are false teachers and there are false believers and has filled the church. Not filled as into 100%, but they are present in the church and we are constantly warned against them, against false teachers and false believers. Because as he says here, they walk in darkness if, well, it's self-examination, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, you might be offended by this, but John is speaking in the we form. He's saying, me and all other believers like me, if we say that we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with God who is light, and we walk in the darkness, we're liars. And we do not do the truth. We do not do the truth. We're walking in darkness. And there may be an attempt to convince everybody of their own holiness, but by their fruit you shall know them. By their fruit you shall know them. And they will reveal to everyone who has any discernment. And to have that discernment, you must be a good Berean and see what the Scriptures say. And anyone who has any discernment will see that they do walk in darkness. And walking in darkness means what? It means that they continue in sin. Stubbornly remain in sin in whatever way that may be. That does not mean, of course, that true children of the light are sinless. Of course they're not. But that the convicting work of the Holy Ghost has an effect upon them to bring them to repentance. Yes, there is sin, and sometimes that sin is stubborn, or it's a bosom sin, or it's a sin that's you know, gone beneath the radar, and they haven't noticed, they haven't understood it. But when that Word of God that comes to them as they read the Scriptures, as they come under the preaching, it has an effect. It has a convicting work that they can no longer step to one side and say, that's not for me, or I have a thousand reasons to ignore it, to despise it, to not be subject to it. But the true child of light, although a sinner still, will be convicted and will be changed. And so where you see the behavior of a Christian that persistently contradicts their own profession, then you mean understand from John that this is not a true profession. It says that they walk in darkness and therefore their profession is a lie and they do not do the things that a real believer does. So they have the deception of others and you can deceive others but what's the a terrible truth that we have from the scriptures is that you can deceive yourself. You can be so good at putting on that mask for others that you've actually ended up deceiving yourself. And the longer you do it, the, the, the more you, 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 as it were, are convinced of your own lie. And that truth is taken from verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Again, sharp words from the Apostle. Often we have this idea of the, of the Apostle John, this young, say, 17-year-old, ha- you know, uh, uh, happy, friendly young man who sees Christ as some sort of uh, father figure as well as his Lord and Master, of course. Uh, and, but here we see a man 
It was very, very sharp. Very sharp. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So these are differing types of self-deceived or self-deceiving churchgoer. And I think there's, a, there's maybe three that we can pull out of this and understand different types who say that they have no sin, who deceive themselves. Firstly, you have those that believe after conversion that they can become absolutely sinless. And, and, and there, are, there are different groups of people throughout the ages who've, of Christians who've thought this. Uh, the Wesleyan Methodists the, uh, and related to them, the holiness movement are such people. But John rebukes them for being so arrogant. To have this idea that, this, uh, that, the, that the battle between the born-again soul and the flesh can be absolutely won on this side of glory when it needs a miracle of the resurrection of the body to attain that. And if anyone knows anything about John Wesley, let me know, don't want to pick on John Wesley per se, but John Wesley himself had this idea that he was so pure and holy and he did all this, but yet if you just ask his wife that he was not a holy husband, he was not a devoted husband, he wasn't looking after his wife financially, emotionally or any way, he was too busy doing all his speaking tours and trying to prove to everybody how holy he was. And yet he committed, shall we say, uh, factual adultery in the sense that he abandoned his wife. There's not holiness there, however much you try to work it up. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As, as much good as John Wesley did, he was self-deceived. Secondly, what about those who are blind to their own daily sinning? Because their eyes are too much upon the moat in the brother's eye. And therefore, if you're too focused upon the moat, the speck that you find in your brother's eye, what does that mean? It means you do not see the beam in your own eye. This is, this is the truth of, of, what the, of what the Lord was saying in that, in that parable. So, looking at those moats, you know, as it were, your focus goes beyond the beam. And you can't actually help them anyway. You can't help them to remove the speck out of their own eye because you've never experienced and undergone the necessary humility and repentance to get the beam out of your own eye. So how on earth can you help someone remove the moat in their own eye? And if we look around, we can see moats everywhere, but God says, get rid of the beam first. And therefore, if you are looking at other people's moats, it just means you're not self-examining to the extent that the Scriptures tell us to. And thirdly then, those that have no conviction of sin are those that live in a legalist's fantasy. The legalist's fantasy is this, that if I keep these rules, and if I do all this and do all that, that I will be accepted by God. Now the problem with the legalists is that they do not understand grace. And they also do not understand the corruptedness of their own being. The corrupt cannot do corrupt works to please a holy God. It is all of grace, or none of it. And if we consider then those three, those three types, and any others that might exist, what is it this? It really comes down to this for those three. Is their consideration of their own sin, they find it uh, too light a matter. It's too light a matter to them, their own sin. They might consider themselves as good as sinless, but they do not see the weight of their own sin. 
See the weight of other people's sins, but don't see the weight of their own sins. So whether you're a holiness movement uh, uh, addict, whether you're a, uh, those who are uh, too busy judging other believers and not judging themselves, or those who are legalists and think that sin can be paid off in, in some way other than by, by the blood of Christ and the grace of God, it's because they do not understand the seriousness and the weight and the wickedness of sin. Do not understand it. That's why they've never come to true faith. Never come to true faith. And John corrects them for this and he rebukes them about this. He says they are deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. Which is John's way of saying they're not even saved. So we have the declaration of God's being, which is a, a joyful truth, and then we come down to these very serious matters regarding your soul and the church of Christ. But then John brings us back again to thoughts of joy when we consider this, that God is light, we are not, but what can make the difference? The blood of Jesus Christ the blood of Jesus Christ. When it comes and it reaches and touches the soul of a sinner, there is cleansing, there is, there is forgiveness, there is purity, there is peace. And that's what makes the difference. God is light, the sinner is darkness, but the blood washes from all sin. Which brings us, therefore, to the third and final point, the cleansing by Christ's blood. In 1 John 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. The blood. Not our works, not our wishful thinking, not our religious masks, not our history, not what we want people to think about us or what we do think about us. What is the difference that is made? It is made by the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Nothing else. Lord, Lord, listen, do not be secret Romanists that are looking to the blood and something else. It is only the blood that will cleanse us from all sin. And so the glorious truth then, as well as the glorious contrast between those who are truly saved and those who are false converts then, is the difference that we have, is that there is fellowship but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we are humble, if we are gracious, if we are forgiving, if we walk in the ways of God at all times, not just in front of others, not just on the Lord's day, but when we attempt, by God's grace, to have true fellowship with Christ and therefore have true fellowship with other Christians, you cannot have one without the other. John mentions them both together, and they're mentioned together elsewhere. If you cannot love God and hate the brethren, as we looked in the introduction... But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. We have fellowship with other Christians. We have fellowship with the apostles. And the apostles have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, 
Jesus Christ, to use the context and the language of chapter 1. And if we possess this fellowship of light, it is because we also already possess some other fellowship. And what is that? The fellowship of the blood. We have the fellowship of the life when we have the fellowship of the blood. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Who is the us? The fellowship one with another. We who are the Lord's, all of the Lord's, all sprinkled in the blood of Jesus. None of them deserving one drop. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet they are all sprinkled in the same blood. It's the fellowship of the blood that makes all the difference. And how do we have that blood? Will we come to God for the cleansing? We come to God for the cleansing and Jesus says, come unto me. So we come to Jesus for the cleansing. And then Jesus says that we are to repent of our sin over which God is wrathful. And we're to believe on him who has taken God's wrath. So where you have this uh, feeling of conviction of sin, you know you're wicked before God. And then Jesus says, come unto me. I've taken his wrath. I've taken your sin. I have poured out my blood to pay for it. And that precious blood of Jesus Christ, what does it do? It cleanses from all sin. Inside, outside, in the hearts, in the emotions, wherever they may be, in the mind. There's no sin, believer, that Christ's blood will not and cannot cleanse you from. Not one. There's no sin. Even those besetting sins whose power you seem not to be able to break. None of those sins can compare with the blood of Jesus Christ. The ultimate moral and spiritual stain remover. All stains will be removed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And even when they are besetting you, when you call upon the Lord, as our brother was preaching this morning, you cast these cares upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for you. And soon, when God is willing, you will be enabled to truly repent of those sins and be free from their power. And notice with me how the blood that was once applied to your account continues to cleanse in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The continuing cleansing power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that you were saved and forgiven and therefore you've got to keep a clean slate all the time for your own salvation's sake. It's that the blood once applied will always cleanse you. Yes, you can become sinfully backslidden. And you must repent of that sin. But see how there is a constant cleansing for the children of God to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's more in verse 9. It's a whole sermon in and of itself. But we will move on because we're preparing for the table of the Lord this evening. And so a table application is this. If we walk in the light as Christ is in the light, then we may make correct use of the privilege of the table. And in making use of the privilege, we are to be reminded this evening that those emblems that represent the blood of Jesus Christ 
as we take it in, reminds us that this cleanses me from all sin. And as you take it in and as you drink it, what does that remind us of again? That the blood of Jesus Christ goes deep to our core to cleanse us from the very core, from the very innermost of our soul and from our heart, from inside out, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That we stand holy before God because of that blood, not because of anything in us, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And a gospel application. What if you are unable to come to the table this evening? You may have been before. You may have been before, but you'd eaten and drinking unworthily. But what if you here tonight, you realize that you are not worthy because you're still in your sins. You're not cleansed by the blood of Christ, therefore. But let me draw your attention to verse 9, which has so much of the gospel in there. But... If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do we understand by that confession? Yes, repentance. Part of repentance is confession. It's coming before the Lord and repenting of your sins, confessing your guilt and your wickedness, confessing the sin, no longer hiding it, but exposing it to the Lord. Why? So that the blood of Jesus Christ will be applied to it. No longer being hypocrites towards God, who was never fooled anyway, has never been fooled. But you would bring your sin before Him and confess our sins. And then it says He is faithful and just. In other words, He's promised that when you come unto Him and you call upon Him, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That he is then faithful and just to forgive our sins. You see, the confession of sins is with the desire to have forgiveness of our sins. So, listen to this, unbeliever. You come now, even now, even now before the table, and you confess your sins before God seeking to have that forgiveness. He says he will forgive because he's faithful. He is a pure and a holy God. God is light and therefore God is faithful. He keeps his promises and he will forgive your sins and he will continue to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then come and sit and eat and have fellowship in the light of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank Thee for the truth of Thy Word, for the glorious Gospel, to save sinners from all their wickedness, all their sin and all the wrath of God. O oh Lord, what good news is this, that we have made such a mess of it all, of our lives, of our Christian testimony, of everything. And yet, Lord, if we confess our sins, Thou art faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. O oh Lord, there are no conditions here. There are no ifs and buts and ands. Here is the beauty of the gospel, because God is light. 
Lord, we pray for mercy this evening, for hearts to be opened, that thou would grant grace to confess sin, that fellowship with God would be begun this evening, and fellowship deepened as we gather around thy table. We pray thee this in Jesus' name. Amen.